0: I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'm at the BSG and I'm delighted to have Professor Alex Ford from Leeds here to talk to me about his recent publication in the journal Rational Investigations in Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Hello Alex and thank you for joining me for this podcast. Hello and thank you for inviting me to talk to you today. So can you give me a bit of background, you know, just, so what is irritable bowel syndrome? Is it just a term or is it a specific entity? How do you think about it?
1: I believe it's a specific entity. Um, It is a functional bowel disorder, so a a, a, a disorder of the lower intestine without any structural explanation. It's a chronic disorder and it has a relapsing and remitting nature and it affects approximately 1 in 10 people In the general population at some point in their lives. Because we don't understand the cause of IBS because there isn't a structural explanation for the symptoms it's chronic and difficult to treat because we can't target treatment towards a particular pathological process so traditionally most treatments that we use in gastroenterology for IBS are symptom directed so targeting the predominant symptom or the most troublesome symptom that the patient reports
0: at the time they're consulting with you in the clinic. So what you're saying is that it isn't just the diagnosis if all the tests are normal?
1: No, it's not a kind of dustbin diagnosis where you get consigned to that bin if um, the doctor has run a sort of exhaustive battery of tests and is scratching his head and then says, well, I don't know what's wrong with you, it must be IBS. That's not how to approach the diagnosis of IBS or the management of IBS and that can be quite uh, harmful for patients actually because they then worry that there's still something being missed, that the symptoms are confounding any explanation by an expert and so that drives anxiety and consultation behaviour um, and can be problematic for patients from a sort of psychological perspective.
0: And I guess it makes their symptoms worse, doesn't it? So they get worse because they're worried, because they haven't really got a diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so anxiety can drive symptoms, that's for sure. And also, um, the one would expect that you would have some form of reassurance from a negative test, um, but repeatedly testing people and then finding negative results actually can kind of exacerbate anxiety and cause further health seeking behavior that's been demonstrated in patients with IBS and
0: in patients with functional dyspepsia. So a 40 year old comes to see in clinic how do you make a diagnosis of IBS so what would you tell the listeners were things that helped you feel confident that you can actually make that as the diagnosis?
1: So um, in that sort of patient it's really taking a focused history listening carefully to the patient To elicit the symptoms, Um, the cardinal symptoms of IBS are abdominal pain in association with either altered stool form or altered stool frequency. And the pain tends to be either provoked by or relieved by defecation. So those symptoms together, when they're reported together, are pretty much diagnostic of IBS from a clinical perspective. There are other supporting features that you might uh, be able to tease out in the history. So often, the duration of symptoms has been quite long. So usually, more more than six months, sometimes years. Um, bloating is a is not a key criteria for IBS, but it's very much a supporting symptom. So if it's present, uh, that's that's additive to your clinical suspicion that this is IBS. Around about one in. Somewhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 5 patients will report a precedent um, acute enteric infection. So their symptoms will have been triggered by a sort of food poisoning type illness. So again, that's usually supportive of a diagnosis of IBS. And then obviously you want to make sure that there's no no atypical features. So those would be the kind of alarm or red flag features or other symptoms that just don't sound like they're compatible with IBS. So one of the things I tend to ask patients about in clinic is if they have any nocturnal pain or nocturnal diarrhoea, those sorts of symptoms are rarer in people with functional bowel disease. They're more common in patients with organic disorders like inflammatory bowel disease or microscopic colitis or bile acid diarrhoea.
0: So it'd be the same if they've got bloody diarrhoea or weight loss or bad arthritis or a bad mouth, all of those things. Yes. So let's park the red flag symptoms, signs, and investigations on the side for the moment. If you think it is irritable bowel syndrome, do you think there should be some done? So,
1: normal clinical practice when we see a patient, you know, either if we're a primary care physician or a secondary care physician, is usually we do some form of testing. So, we're not saying that in IBS you shouldn't do any testing at all, and that you just tell the patient this is IBS without doing any investigations. But the there's a limited number of investigations that it's judicious to do, and beyond that, exhaustive testing is unhelpful. So, the, a, a, a basic panel of blood tests is completely reasonable, and you know you would think about full blood count and a CRP because if you had evidence of anaemia or high platelets or a high CRP, then you'd be more concerned. That this patient actually has inflammatory bowel disease so although the symptoms of IBS tend to cluster together they're not specific to IBS so you can have other organic conditions that will present with a similar uh, pattern of symptoms so if you've got a normal CRP and a normal full blood count then that's reassuring some people would say thyroid function should be tested I'm kind of ambivalent about that. I think um, the, the studies that are out there show that the prevalence of abnormal thyroid function tests in people meeting criteria for IBS is around about 4%, which is the same as in the general population. The one test, the one blood test I would always say is, is mandated is to rule out celiac disease with a, with a serological test because there's very good evidence from numerous studies that the prevalence of positive um, TTG or uh, EMA is higher about four times higher in people who
0: sound like they've got IBS than control people who have got no tummy symptoms. There's a lot talked about calprotectin now, isn't there? And, you know, I'm not sure whether that's one of those tests that can be overused or underused, and we haven't quite found the middle ground because there isn't a definite cut-off. But do you think they should all have a calprotectin done? So this is a, a very good question, and one of the things I would say is that
1: the patient with the constipation predominant IBS or the patient who has a mixed stool pattern, the mixed stool pattern itself is very sort of pathognomonic, if you like, of IBS. So the patient who has a fluctuating bowel habit, immediately they tell me that I start thinking this is, this is irritable bowel syndrome. And with the patient with constipation, that in, is unlikely to be due to anything other than IBS unless it's drug-induced. And so I'm immediately reassured that I don't need to do many other investigations in a patient with IBS-C or mixed stool pattern IBS. So. The person with diarrhoea, that's the one that, where you can miss an organic diagnosis. And that's why you need to take a really focused history and use some investigations. And this is where the calprotectin is, is very useful. So this is patients with, with non-bloody diarrhoea, uh, usually under the age of 40 or 45, depending on your local referral criteria. But those patients should have a calprotectin. And if the calprotectin is normal, so some people would say less than 50, others would say less than 100, Uh, we use less than 100 now in Leeds, Um, then if that calprotectin is within those limits and the patient is less than 40 or less than 45, then it's highly unlikely this is inflammatory bowel disease, and you would then say this is IBS and make a positive diagnosis. Obviously, if the calprotectin was borderline or high, you would um, either repeat the test if it's borderline and ask them about non-steroidal use because non-steroidals can push up a calprotectin and if it's high, you would proceed to um, a colonoscopy to exclude inflammatory bowel disease.
0: And if you suspected microscopic colitis and the calprotectin was normal, you might think about a colonoscopy. Is that, yes, exactly. That's, that's so that, new thinking in a way, isn't it? Yeah. But it's it's, again, I think you've said quite clearly that within the IBS phenotype, the very diarrhoea predominant ones need a bit more consideration. Yes, you have to be careful because you can miss things like bile acid diarrhoea or microscopic colitis. It's rare,
1: I feel, in my own clinical practice to see patients under the age of 45 with microscopic colitis. The typical presentation for patients with, with microscopic colitis is they tend to be female, generally middle aged so you know around about 50 55 they've often got a coexistent autoimmune disorder so often rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune thyroid disease and they have a a, a clinical history which is a, sometimes quite a short duration of diarrhea but very watery very troublesome nocturnal they've often lost weight because they avoid food because they know that if they eat and they're out and about that will provoke the symptoms of the diarrhea and they'll be caught short and they won't know where to go to get to the toilet so that's the typical history. So those are the patients that I would be um, concerned about. And even if a calprotectin was normal in those patients, if that history was provided, I would be thinking this, this patient probably has microscopic colitis and we need to do a colonoscopy to obtain random biopsies to rule it out. Yeah, exactly. And what
0: about bile acid diarrhoea? I mean, is that common? Are we missing a lot of bile acid diarrhoea? So some people would
1: say, yes, we are. And again, um, we, we know from studies that around about one in... Three, one in four people who sound like they've got diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome will have abnormal evidence of um, abnormal CCAT retention. So CCAT scanning is the test that we use in the UK for the diagnosis of bile acid diarrhea. Now, um, the, there's several cross-sectional studies looking at using Rome criteria to diagnose IBS and then sending these people for a CCAT scan, and they're all pretty similar results, around about 20%. of people have an abnormal CCAT retention. Now, whether that's a cause of their symptoms or a consequence of that they genuinely have bile acid diarrhoea, or whether it's that they have rapid transit because of their IBS with diarrhoea and therefore the retention is low because the capsule transits through very quickly, we don't understand that yet. Um, So I think, you know, again, I tend to go on a case-by-case basis there. I wouldn't advocate testing every single person who sounds like they've got IBS with diarrhoea, with a C-CAT, because firstly it involves radiation exposure, um, and secondly it can be expensive, but I think again if there's um, clinical suspicion, so again chronic watery stools, weight loss, nocturnal symptoms, again it it immediately makes me think this could be organic disease and I would do a CCAT.
0: And what about bacterial overgrowth?
1: Yeah, so the bacterial overgrowth hypothesis started around about, Ten or 15 years ago and it was a particular group of researchers in the usa who showed very high rates of um, positive breath testing so lactulose and hydrogen breath testing in people who sounded like they had irritable bowel syndrome and the hypothesis there was that this is actually bacterial overgrowth that's causing their symptoms and they showed that they could use non-absorbable antibiotics like rifaximin to improve symptoms in this patient group And on the back of that, some people will be aware that there were these two huge phase three trials of Rifaximin in the the US called Target 1 and Target 2, uh, which showed that the drug is beneficial in people with IBS with diarrhoea or mixed stool pattern IBS. But other investigators independently have looked at this issue and have done breath tests and have not shown such a high prevalence in people with IBS and actually shown that the prevalence is similar in people with IBS compared with healthy controls. And there's a, another very elegant study from, um, from Canada, from Steve Vanner's group, which shows uh, where they took patients with IBS and did a breath test and also did a radio-labeled um, meal with scintigraphy. And they did it all at the same time. And they showed that basically that the, 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 the peak that they saw in breath hydrogen in the patients who they thought had bacterial overgrowth actually coincided with their... Radio labeled meal entering the cecum, so this was actually rapid transit that was causing this rise in breath hydrogen so i i, I don 't um, tend to do breath testing at all in patients with ibs i don't i, I 'm not a, a big believer that this is all being caused by bacterial overgrowth, and if it is, I think we need better ways of diagnosing bacterial overgrowth because I think the breath test is a is a suboptimal test the, the, you know the, the, there is no real gold standard um, and so it 's a, it's a difficult issue to deal with so I tend to Uh, avoid testing for bacterial overgrowth unless there are other known risk factors. So have they had previous surgery? Have they been on PPIs for a prolonged time? Do we know they've got um, small bowel diverticulosis or scleroderma or something like that? And then I would be thinking about bacterial overgrowth, but not in a young, fit person who's got no pre-existing reason to have bacterial
0: overgrowth. So I guess what you're saying is that IBS is not a diagnosis of exclusion, and a good and thorough, careful history will pick up major and less obvious red flags. And actually, doing some investigations, yeah, it's right and appropriate, but carefully considered, maybe not too many, and maybe not repeated investigations. uh, uh, Would that be what your your take-home message is? Exactly,
1: yes. So, judicious use of a limited panel of investigations, there's no need for repeated investigations. That just creates anxiety and uncertainty around the diagnosis. And there's enough uncertainty for people with IBS already because it's difficult to treat. So, if they get told they've got IBS and then get a treatment that doesn't work for them and then the doctor starts to ask for more tests and that will just create more uncertainty and more anxiety and drive... Uh, health-seeking behaviour. So yes, it's a limited panel of investigations after a very careful history, and if there are any atypical features, then I would do more targeted investigations, predominantly in patients who report in diarrhoea. I don't worry too much in patients who have constipation-predominant IBS or the very typical uh, fluctuating stool pattern
0: that you see in IBSM. That's great. That's great concluding comments, actually, I was about to suggest, and you've just given me them. Alex look it's really great that you've given us time at this busy meeting to talk to us and thanks so much for this podcast and readers the article is published it's linked to this podcast and it's available online I would um, hope you'll go and read it to get more information on this really important topic that affects our clinical practice on a day-to-day basis I'm Mark Beattie, editor-in-chief of our Frontline Gastroenterology and thanks for listening